G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Well, we're finally here, Tim. This is the last episode for season three of this wonderful little show of ours. That's right, Chris. But before we take a month off, uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to recap what we've been learning and look at it as a bigger picture. So Genesis 3 is only uh, a part of the larger story here in Genesis, isn't it? The the Eden story begins in Chapter 2. Very true. Not only that, but we find as we work our way through the story set in the Garden of Eden that there are strong ties back to Chapter 1 and connections that will become apparent as we proceed through the rest of the biblical story. Everything weaves together like a bit of a tapestry. I like tapestries. I came here to view them. The tapestries? Dear me, this man is dense. This is a castle, isn't it? You do have tapestries. Uh, This is a castle, and we have many tapestries. And if you are a Scottish lord, then I am Mickey Mouse. Aye, I have not a Scottish bone in my body, or even in my kilt. But yes, there is an amazing unity in the Bible that shows the providence of God from beginning to end. Much like a tapestry. Uh, that uh, was a very uh, interesting interpretation of uh, the Scottish accent, by the way, but a very nice way to reference uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, a great film. So getting to the point, if we're going to do this right, we should probably start in the beginning. Oh, in the beginning, I see what you did there. But as I suggested back in season one, the story kicked off when God began to bring order to the cosmos. He turned chaos into order separating things and putting them in their proper place. The first of his creations we tend to think of as light, but really it was just the organisation of light, separating it from darkness in order that we would have a unit of time measurement, which he called the day. So time is obviously of great importance to God because it was the first thing that he set in place in this story. And I've got a feeling we'll uh, be coming back to that point later on. We certainly will. And as the six days of creation continued to unfold, we saw that God brought order by putting things in their proper place, not only in the natural world, but in the spiritual world as well. And that's clumsy terminology on my part, because really these things coexist in the same unified reality. But it's often hard for us to wrap our heads around it. The ancient world was a very different place with different ways of thinking about things. And as we learned throughout the course of our study in the first season of the podcast, the way ancient people talked about existence was really in terms of function. It exists if it does something, if it works, if it belongs in its place or if it forms part of a bigger system of order. And that means that the story Genesis 1 is telling is one of the beginning of order and function in our world rather than the beginning of material existence. We saw that Genesis 1 was not the origin of matter but the beginning of God's work in making everything function as it should. We have some trouble with terminology here because we associate creation with the beginning of existence, which is fine, but we have to talk about how existence is defined and what creation means. So existence, as you just said, is about function and creation is... Well, uh, to quote myself from episode eight of our first season, we can define bara, or creation, as to cause the existence of something, whether material or non-material, by setting it apart according to divinely ordained functionality, either by God or by his appointed agent. And we learned that even agents of chaos have their divinely ordained place and function in God's creation. 
we placed a lot of emphasis on cosmology in season one, and we talked about how the biblical text describes the way that things work in the world rather than stuff like the shape of the planet. It's not doing science, it's doing theology. But getting past the concerns of science, we were able to see how Genesis 1 shows order in heavenly places as well. And it does so in material terms so that we can grasp the abstract concepts that it presents to us. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why Genesis 1 uses the term Elohim to talk about God, whereas Genesis 2 introduces him as the, uh, the Lord God, right? Yeah, that's right. We're being introduced to Elohim because at the broadest level, he is God over all, not just humanity, but the spirits as well. God is spirit, but he's not the only spirit. There are many non-embodied beings that the Bible calls Elohim because that word describes non-embodied intelligent beings, regardless of their status or their authority or their power. God is chief over them all. So as a title, Elohim functions as representing the entire group of the same kind of beings. He's the Lord of spirits, the God of all gods. So God spent the week putting everything in order and getting everything to function as it should, bringing life to everything, putting everything in place so that everything can grow and flourish. And then he created humans by giving them the role of stewardship over everything he had put in place and the responsibility of being his representatives on the earth, functioning as his body by doing in the material world what the Lord of Spirits wanted done. Chapter 1, according to our modern Bible, ends abruptly in the wrong place, dropping the seventh day of the week. So I guess if we could do it over, we would divide chapter 1 from chapter 2, right in the middle of chapter 2, verse 4, because it's very important that we don't treat the Sabbath as something that isn't part of the week. When you think about it, that's one of the major points that this text is making. We saw that God presented himself as a model for the Israelites to follow, in that he worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And that rest is important. Yeah, and uh, we talked about rest in terms of being seated in a commanding position where everything runs as it should and you can just sit back and enjoy the fruits of, of that labour. And that's why in the Bible they talk about kings having rest and the land having rest. Yeah, but the problem is that once Israel came into the promised land, historically we find that they did not allow the land to have its rest. And that's an issue of trust and loyalty. Even though Genesis 1 put everything in its place and we witnessed the humbling of the celestial beings, in the eyes of ancient Israel, these entities still had something to offer. All the pagans were worshipping them, and it was all too easy for Israel to wander after these lesser gods in order to try to satisfy their desires. But that just ended up meaning more work for the people, more work for the land, no faithfulness to God, and no rest. God had been dishonoured, misrepresented, and forgotten. And that's the problem with getting carried away in selfish desires. You end up working so hard to get these things that you want, that you end up forgetting who is able to provide it for you. So the Sabbath is a big deal because it helps people to regain that centre and that focus. It reminds people that God is able to provide for all of our needs, even when we're not working to make it happen for ourselves. The Sabbath is the day when we're supposed to represent God by showing how we're not worried about meeting our own needs. We just maintain our stewardship over creation and reap the rewards of the work that we did during the week. There's some pretty important lessons to learn there. Absolutely. And in order to see just how important it is, we're now going to take a look at the Garden of Eden story, which we've been following for the last two seasons on the podcast. And given that we've just been talking about the Sabbath, that's going to frame how we read this story, because as I said recently on the show, the narrative placement is critical. We've finished creation with the Sabbath, and now, the story of two people whose faithfulness to God is tested. 
follows on immediately from the Sabbath. The Eden story doesn't really give us much of a perspective of time. We don't know how long it took for all those events to unfold, but I would argue that it's very deliberate because it means that the last reference to time that we had was the seventh day and the Sabbath rest. That frames the whole story in that light. And it means that the important lessons that we learned at the end of chapter one are important to keep in mind as we continue to read through the Eden narrative. People often talk about Genesis 2 as a second creation story or a retelling of the first one. But when we read the story in its context, we find that all the talk about things not existing is really just the way the author describes the narrative setting. It describes the state of the world prior to the fall of man. We're often tempted to talk about that in terms of perfection, but this is not a story about perfection. The very idea of perfection does not even appear in the text. This is a world that God has created and is still creating, and his plan is to have mankind continue that work with him. We talked for a bit about the location of the Garden of Eden and found out that it was an interesting kind of place that might have actually had a historical reference point, but only in as far as it served the purpose of the story, because the reality is that Eden existed just to be the place where God met with man among the divine council. So we get to the part where God forms the man from the dust of the ground, and we learned in our study of this last season that this isn't about God making a sandcastle and magically bringing it to life as a human being. The man is chosen from a vast multitude of people, not because he is distinct or special, but because he's just another average guy. That's why he's referred to as dust of the ground. If the ground is the cultivated soil, where people come together in community and industry and civilization as a whole, then this man is just another face in the crowd. But it's the very fact that he is so ordinary and so average and so unremarkable that makes him relatable to us. And that's the whole point being made by the author. We as individuals are not special. The experience of this man is common to all of us. We're no different. And had we been in the same position, we would have done no different. Yeah, and this man having been chosen by God with a particular task as God's representative begins to learn some tough lessons that we all need to take on board. Yeah, the, the man had an introduction to the garden that began with all the usual niceties of being a guest in someone's home, including the offer of all kinds of good things from the trees in the garden. And as we discussed, the trees in Eden, according to scripture, are representative of divine beings that God had also placed in the garden. This was the man's opportunity to receive instruction and wisdom and guidance from those who are faithful to the Lord God. And remember that the title, the Lord God, reminds us that we have a responsibility toward God to honour the covenant and relationship implied by the biblical use of that terminology. And as I said last season, the trouble we have with the man here is that he got familiar in God's house. He got comfortable, got casual. He forgot that this is God's house and the proper etiquette in God's house is to wait until something is offered to you before you take it. So if something is prohibited, then it would be a grave mistake to just help yourself to it. We talked about the man being a king. So the man's busy doing all this king stuff, but God notices that he doesn't have a corresponding partner to help him in his work. This is a failure on the part of the man to recognise that the woman was just such a helper. God put him to sleep, and while he sleeps, he has a vision in which God reveals to him that the woman is the other half of him that he was missing. Some would say the better half, but that's another conversation. Anyway, between the two of them, they realise that they belong together and their relationship forms the basis of what we know as marriage. And although the Bible never speaks of these individuals as children, it's like we're watching them grow up and learn as they go. And that brings us to 
Genesis chapter 3, which obviously has been the focus of this whole season of the podcast. Yeah, we introduced the season this time around with a reminder that the story that we're reading is what we call an archetypal story, which means that the specific people and situations are written to describe the general experience of all of us. We talked about the function of law and the effect of sin. We talked about how the Apostle Paul uses the primeval history as a frame through which to view the gospel. And then we kicked off the season proper with our introduction to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that was an interesting one, actually. Um, we were talking about serpents in the Bible and how they were viewed in the ancient world in general. And, and you mentioned an inscription that was found from the time of King Hezekiah, which just so happens to depict exactly the same thing that Isaiah describes in, in chapter 6 of his prophecy. So that was a, a piece of the puzzle that helped us to identify the serpent as one of God's throne guardians, specifically described as one of the seraphim. Yeah, that's right. And that should give us some food for thought when we consider what we were talking about in our last episode. Do you know that burning, shining entity that wielded the sword? Hmm, now that's an interesting uh, possibility. Yeah, it's one that I'm just speculating about at this point. Anyway, what the text of Genesis 3 does reveal to us is that the serpent did indeed fall foul of the destiny that God had ordained for him when he decided to see if he could tempt the woman into breaking the one rule that she and the man had been given. And we talked about how the various attempts of people over the years to push the fall of the serpent further back in time were really just motivated by a need to defend a bad reading of the text. So, yeah, if you're a gap theory person, uh, I'm talking to you. All right, moving right along. Uh, one of the other interesting parts of Genesis 3 is the, is the conversation that takes place between the serpent and the woman. That's right. And what is particularly interesting in this little exchange that they have is that the serpent offers what the woman already had or was at least on the path to achieving. And the woman, believing that she doesn't have it, basically destroys her chance of having it in a vain attempt to get it. And the it, in case you're wondering, is divine knowledge. This could be looked at as some kind of an attempted shortcut to theosis or becoming like God. Of course, we all know the story and the serpent's little trick works like a charm. And this is the bit where we really start to see the character of the man in the Garden of Eden because we discovered that he was there the whole time and he failed to speak up or to act. And it gets interesting here because we start to realise that this man had flaws even before the fall technically occurred. So we explored that idea for a while and came to the conclusion that mankind has always been inherently selfish, even before God gave this man a particular job to do. The thing to remember is that it doesn't really constitute sin unless there's a law against it. And that's where the man runs into trouble, because having been given a single rule to keep, he finds himself violating it out of pure self-interest, in spite of the fact that God was explicitly calling him to a higher state of being and a greater purpose than his mere fleshly self. When we realise that these ancient texts served to address an entire community who do not think of themselves as individuals, we realise that the transgression of the man and the woman applied equally to all people, not because of biological descent, but because of a common human nature. Yeah, and I think the best part about all of that was understanding that since we were not morally perfect to begin with, the status that God gave the man and the woman as his representatives was not based on some kind of perfection. And that's important because it means that God can use us today without waiting for us to become perfect, uh, which is, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for that, that's for sure. It also means that our hope to achieve future glory isn't rooted in, you know, some kind of effort to return to the past, but it's actually driven by our eschatology, our understanding of the, of the future. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's also deeply connected to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he does for us in his role as our great high priest who intercedes for us before God in order to present us blameless before him. Speaking of eschatology, we also had a discussion about the day of the Lord, which we now think of as a future reality in terms of the final judgment of the living and the dead. The day of the Lord was also the way that the prophets spoke about the judgment of God upon his people and also upon the nations. So it was quite shocking to see in the text of Genesis 3 this distinct wording that hinted at the wrath and the anger of God at the violation of his commandment in his sacred space and against the narrative backdrop of the Sabbath day when we read that God came walking through the garden in the spirit of the day. Yeah, and that reading really shattered the traditional picture of God, you know, naively strolling through the garden in the cool breeze of the afternoon, wondering where Adam was. Yeah, so that got us talking about how God was clearly angry and he came to the man for answers, but all he got was the blame game. And eventually it was the serpent who was left holding the hot potato. You could say the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Oh, my goodness. We're going there, are we? Anyway, that, that was the point at which we started looking at curses and what they are and what they're not and what they did and what they didn't do. And that was a really important thing for us to look into because it helped to shatter this illusion that a man bites an apple and God decides to effectively make the entire world into a horrible wasteland as a consequence. Instead, we understood the things that God said as statements of consequence. So that's important to us because it means that we don't get to blame the fact that our toast falls to the ground with the jam side down on Adam and Eve because we live in a fallen world. We don't live in a fallen world. We just live in a world where our actions have consequences. And those consequences are not little things like your toast falling off your plate or your hair dye coming out the wrong colour. We're talking about bigger picture stuff, like the fact that we have to work so hard because we don't rest enough in God to let God take care of it. We're talking about the fact that we relinquished our God-given authority to the lesser powers of the world, and they now exert influence over our lives in harmful ways, and we're quite often powerless to do anything about it. We're talking about the fact that our lives are dictated by men who claim authority over us and make our lives hard because of their abuse of power. We're talking about the fact that we still have a God-given job to do as God's representatives, and it has now been made that much harder by the fact that we failed to represent God well in the first place. I'm going to quote myself here from an earlier episode. I realise that a lot of this stuff for some of us is going to be hard to swallow, because many of us were brought up in a tradition that just said in a nutshell that everything was perfect until Eve ate the apple, and then God came along and went poof and everything changed. God cursed the world and made everything horrible, and then we wonder why we find ourselves 20, 40, 60 years later, deconstructing our faith because God seems so mean. This is why you can't stop learning about what the Bible actually says when you grow out of Sunday school. Because that easy reading, face value, safe for kids kind of Bible reading has a tendency to lead to all kinds of errors associated with not grasping the Bible in its context. But we were not left without hope when God pronounced his judgment on the individuals in the garden. God spoke of the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent but not without receiving a fatal blow in the process. And we talked earlier this season about how it's easy for us Christians to look back on this passage and see Jesus, the wounded victor of this great cosmic conflict. But the reality is that the first audience of this story had no idea who Jesus was because he hadn't been born yet. So the seed of the woman was simply her offspring, and that would require help from God to keep that hope alive. And we also uh, talked about the, the seed of the serpent as being the people who do what the serpent does, right? So it's not about biology or bloodlines or DNA or any of that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, that's right. And we also talk about deception and how the biblical definition of deception is to create a false view of the world, a false reality. That's what false teachers do, and that's why scripture is so hard on them. That's exactly what the serpent did to Eve. And so if you want to know who the seed of the serpent is, don't worry about looking for people who might be lizard people or giants or something. You just have to look at the people who are deceiving people and trying to gain power over them. And speaking of power, we saw a scathing criticism of the human systems of power when we talked about the man as a failed king, a tyrant whose means of survival would be the oppression of the very people he was commissioned to serve. That was a tough reading for those of us who'd grown up with that expression, by the sweat of your brow, which we took to mean that making a living was going to be hard work. But we noticed in our close reading of the text that the translation in most Bibles really misses the mark. And what we're seeing here is a picture of a person in power using the fear of their anger and the fear of their power to coerce people into providing what the man, the tyrant king, cannot. That's a harsh view of the first man, given that only two chapters ago everything had been declared very good by God. But then, as we witness the attempts of the man to be found going about his master's business, we see that he's still acting out of self-interest, even while he tries to maintain the facade of righteousness. The name that he gives his wife is oriented around securing for himself the kingship and his own perpetuity. God's response to this vain attempt at self-aggrandizement is to remind the humans of their fleshly nature by dressing them in the skins of animals, which still brings the humans down to earth, so to speak, but rather than bringing them shame, as the serpent did, God humbles them while taking care of their need for dignity. And although the humans have proven that they lack the maturity and wisdom to be able to participate in the work of God at the level of the divine council, God still considers them to have attained the knowledge of good and evil to some extent. We talked about that knowledge as being in a position of judgment. So the man and the woman have taken the first steps toward determining their own destiny. And the writing's on the wall, so to speak, because we're now headed inexorably toward exile and the reality that this self-determination is going to lead to folly. We spent quite a bit of time looking at exile and comparing it to other stories in Israel's history that served as a precursor to the Babylonian exile. We found that the exile itself framed the retelling of some events, in particular the primeval history. So it's a little bit counterintuitive because the natural reading presents the earliest stories first and the ones that come later would normally be interpreted in light of what we'd already seen. But what we found out was that the later stories actually guide the interpretation of the earliest ones since the composition of those early stories actually took place quite late. That's something that I talk about in my book in Chapter 5 where I discuss the use of motifs from stories in Israel's history which appear in the narrative retelling of events that occurred before Israel even existed. Most importantly, we learned that the humans were sent out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they were taken. And according to our reading, we understand that as being a duty of service to the people of the world outside of Eden. And that means for the Israelites, a duty of service to the nations and a responsibility to bring them to the knowledge of God. And we concluded our reading of Genesis 3 by learning that God did not send the man and the woman away from his presence when he sent them into exile, but rather God himself assembled his traveling entourage and he, he left the garden as well and that's an unexpectedly comforting conclusion really to to the eden narrative because it reminds us that god is with us even through the consequences of our actions that's so good when we look at the history of the israelites prior to the exile we can see many things that come through in the eden narrative we see the neglect of appointed times and sabbaths we see the failure of men to recognise the value of women. 
we see the neglect of the work that God assigned for the people to do. We see the desire to obtain knowledge by going to lesser divine beings rather than the most high God. We see the shift in allegiances from the creator to the created and the shift in focus from the things of God to the things of the flesh. We see the rise of tyranny and the desire to maintain power and to control destiny. We see hardship and forced labor as a result of that tyranny. We see a foretaste of divine wrath in God's response to the transgression of the humans and the deception initiated by the serpent. So the messaging for the audience of this story is clear and compelling. There wouldn't be a single one among the exiles who hadn't seen some of these things foreshadowed in their day-to-day -day life in Judea prior to the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. So the Eden story would have rung true for them as a message from God bringing conviction to hearts and minds that it was time to repent and seek God for deliverance. And yet, we're not left without hope because we see also the very earliest foreshadowing of redemption by means of the seed of the woman, which was hinted at even earlier in Genesis 2, verse 6, when we spoke of the mist that came up from the ground. And that hope is strengthened by the presence of God in the midst of our trials and the consequences of our attempted grasp at destiny. So now it's time to throw a bit of a spanner in the works because we thought we had this all neatly wrapped up in a nice little bow. The problem is that, as many commentators have pointed out, the book of Genesis is divided into 10 separate parts, which are identified by the use of what we have come to know as the Toledote formula. We usually see it in our translation as these are the generations of, or something to that effect. The first and only time we saw the use of that phrase so far in our study was early in Genesis 2. And given the pattern established by later instances of this terminology, it made it look like the Eden story was beginning at that point. But when we explored that further, we discovered that the author or redactor of the text had actually made a deliberate choice to move the phrase from the beginning, where it should have been in Genesis 1, to the end of the creation week story. And there were some theological reasons, as we discussed, for that manoeuvre. But given that we've now reached the end of the Garden of Eden narrative, the question is why the story doesn't conclude with a similar statement introducing chapter 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. Why is it that we don't see another introduction to a subsequent story until we get to Genesis 5 and the generations of Adam? And without going too far into Genesis 4, because that's going to be obviously next season, it kind of gives the game away as soon as we look behind the translation and realise that we're not dealing with Adam in this text we're still dealing with the man. So chapter four is evidently a continuation of the story in the new setting outside of Eden, maybe a sequel. Wait, we were talking about Genesis 1 to 11 as being the prequel to the biblical story. And if that's the case, is Genesis 4 a sequel within a prequel? This is some kind of like inception. Mm, think of it as the dystopian post-apocalyptic world that came about as a result of the events of Genesis 3, not like Mad Max 2. But we're still at the centre of the spiral here, and we're going to go around a couple more times and add more layers to this tragic story that will eventually reveal to us the full extent of the situation in which we find ourselves before we get to Genesis 12. So all of this is the build-up to the main event, and really the first three chapters just set the stage to help us see where we came from and what could have been. The story of the heavens and the earth, that is Genesis 1 through 4, 
is not over yet. Well, be that as it may, the season is over, so we're going to take a break for the next month while we prepare an epic season number four for all of our listeners. But before we do that, what do you say, Tim, if we've got time for some answers to a giant questions? Oh, we certainly have. Let's do it. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Alrighty. Well, here's a question that we got from Mark. Thank you, Mark. Mark has a good question to ask about how we interpret interpret scripture consistently he says hi there tim if you have time please help me understand how you interpret scripture based on the passage below passage being 1 chronicle 16 23 to 26 and also verse 30 uh, which says sing to the lord all the earth is this an exhortation and an expression of the desire for all people to sing to the lord or is it irrelevant because it is not really something we take seriously because it's written in a poetic genre proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day is this a call for proclaiming the gospel of salvation every possible day or do we ignore it because it is written so poetically declare his glory among the nations is this verse not relevant to us today because they do not have an understanding of how many nations there actually are and it was writing poetically his wonders among all peoples does the writer mean real wonders or just poetic wonders when he says all people, does it mean literally all peoples or is it just a poetic way of saying the people who live down the street? For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. Is it true or is this statement just hyperbole? I almost said hyperbole then. Hyperbole in the context of a poetic song. He is also to be feared above all gods. Once again, is this true about God? I mean, this is just a song, isn't it? For all the gods of the peoples are idols. Does the writer mean literal idols? Or is that just a word used for poetic flow to depict an ancient concept rather than a modern reality? But the Lord made the heavens. Do we take this literally, given the scientific theories of the Big Bang that most of the world believes and the universe's existence doesn't need to, need to have nothing to do with God? After all, this is just a poem song, isn't it? The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Uh, and Mark finishes uh, by saying, I'll let you take this one from here. So that's a lot to get through, Tim, but uh, away you go. There you go. Well, uh, it certainly was a giant question. And I have to confess that I grew up saying hyperbole for far too long uh, before I worked out uh, how that was actually pronounced. Okay. Well, yeah, firstly, thanks for the question, Mark. Let, let's get a little background on what's going on here, and then we'll read the passage in question one more time with a little more context to fill us in. So David has become established as the king of Israel at this point. He's got his army of mighty men. They've defeated the Philistines, including some of the giants among them. They've retrieved the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to Jerusalem. And keeping in mind that this was a time before there was a temple, David has had a tent constructed in which to keep the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant is, of course, a very important thing because it means that the Israelites have something to which they can, on a mental level and more importantly on a ritual level, attach the real but intangible presence of God in their midst. Obviously, the Israelites realize that God doesn't need the presence of the Ark to be present in their midst, but this is very much like God's at home now among his people, and so this is cause for celebration. 
Basically, now the people have something around which to orient themselves for worship, which had been forgotten about during the time of King Saul. So it's not like everything's perfect at this time, but certainly the nation is experiencing its first steps towards stability. And Israel can now look forward to taking its place among the nations of the world as a legitimate entity with a king and a place of worship and all this kind of stuff that's essential to good governance and nationhood. And the expectation now is that Israel's destiny as a kingdom of priests is about to unfold. So this is why David takes this opportunity to write a song of praise to God. Let's have a look at the song he's written, and I'll have a few things to say about it as we go. And I'm going to read uh, from uh, where First Chronicles uh, chapter 16 and from verse 8. I will give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. So just an observation here uh, before we continue. When David says, sing to the Lord all the earth, does he actually think that everyone in the world can hear him? Is he actually giving an instruction that he expects everyone in the world to follow? Can we at least just be a little bit realistic and understand that David's trying to convey a sentiment here, an expression of praise? And it's got nothing to do with the whole world, as in the literal meaning. I feel like I shouldn't have to explain these things, but here I am doing it. Um, let's move on. Uh, from verse 24, declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So... We have a reference to creation here. There's nothing mentioned about how that creation was done. David offers no comment about the nature of the creative act. So anything we wish to say about that is not going to come from this passage of scripture. Instead, we need to be talking about the point of mentioning it at all. And the point is that while the people of the nations made idols that represent their gods, we serve a God who made us to represent him. Uh, so to continue in the text, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. I'll just draw your attention to a couple of terms. Here in that last verse, in verse 30, the phrase all the earth in Hebrew is kol eretz, which is directly translated as all the land. And moving on, we have the world, which again in Hebrew is the, the word 
tebel, which refers to the people of the world. It's not a term that's used in reference to physical land or soil or geographical references or to land masses like continents or the planet itself, regardless of what shape you think it is. Tevel means peoples, and it's kind of like when we use the phrase the civilized world, or when we say something like the world's gone mad. We, we don't mean that the planet we live on has consciousness and is insane. We don't mean that the ground is stupid. We mean that everyone has gone crazy. We're talking about people. But in particular, the word Tevel refers to the people of other nations outside of Israel. And that's why the text continues on like this. And notice the reference to the nations here in verse 31. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So the establishment of the nations has nothing to do with the way that the planet is constructed. What David is telling us in this song is that the nations are not going to go away. And it was never God's plan to remove them from their place. Instead, the job of Israel is to rise up as a kingdom of priests who will tell of God's goodness throughout the nations and bring them into the family of God, abandoning the idols they use in the worship of their gods so that they too can worship the one true God who created all others. And continuing into verse 32, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Now, I might just say at this point that there is a considerable distinction between taking something literally and taking something seriously. And I think that some people have a tendency to confuse these things. Do I take it seriously when the biblical text says things like, then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord? Well, I absolutely do take it seriously, but am I going to take that literally? Well, you show me a singing tree and I'll take it literally. You show me a field that's overflowing with joy and I'll change my position on what we should take literally as opposed to what we should take figuratively. But I think we all know that isn't going to happen. None of this means that I'm not taking the text seriously. The question we have to ask ourselves is, since it obviously is an absurd statement to take literally when we say something like the trees of the forest sing for joy, then in what sense are we supposed to understand that kind of language? Are we forced to choose between taking it literally or treating it as something that can't be taken seriously? I think that's a false dichotomy and an absurd proposition designed to prop up a weak argument in favour of literalism. But some people are going to push this further and say, no, 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 we have to take it literally. And we have to assume that the author of this text, let's say for argument's sake, it's King David, since that's the impression we get from the text. He actually thinks that trees can clap their hands and the sky can sing and stuff of that nature for real. Like he, he really thinks that. Like we're supposed to assume that these are just primitive, stupid people and they think dumb stuff like that because they don't have science. And I'm going to disagree with that as well, because that just displays a blatant ignorance of for it poetry because david could quite easily have said let the forces of chaos and the people of the civilized world and the gods of the divine council sing for joy but it just doesn't have that nice feel to it it doesn't convey the beauty of god's creation the way that the metaphorical language does and who are we to say that the writers of scripture are not allowed to use language that conveys beautiful imagery while it refers to things that are hard to define in material terms this is the ancient Near East. They don't do abstracts. And they want to talk about something immaterial, like the gods or the forces of chaos or 
some unspecified population of people beyond the borders of the land. They're going to use concrete terminology that people can relate to. And all those metaphors have been explained before as we've gone through this podcast series. We've talked about the trees in the forest, we've talked about the swarming creatures in the sea, and we've talked about the dust of the field. We know what those things are, because ancient people understood the metaphors. That's not me making this stuff up. It's somewhat ironic, though, that in a passage that the flat earth crowd will use to prop up their cosmology, they point to the establishment of the nations and talk about it as though the earth is flat and set on pillars that hold it up out of the water. And yet they miss the actual cosmology displayed in the text because it's written metaphorically. When David mentions the seas, that's the region under the earth. That's the realm of chaos. When he talks about the field, that's the earth itself. That's the domain of men. That's where we live. When David talks about the trees of the forest, he's talking about the gods in the heavens, in the abode of God. If there was ever a place to draw your argument for this three-tiered cosmology, that would have been it. But unfortunately, it doesn't make any statements about the shape of the earth. That's not going to work either. Let's continue from verse 34. I give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. So now we've been through this whole song, and what we've seen is a consistent picture of David instructing the people to praise God, and to do so in such a way that the nations around Israel will also worship the Most High God and abandon the gods of the nations. And this is consistent with biblical theology on the whole, because as I've said many times, the plan of God is to bring all the nations of the world back to a knowledge of him, and the vessel for that was the seed of Abraham. And of course, that narrows down to the nation of Israel. Why do you think David keeps referring back to the patriarchs? It's because David knows that the response to the situation at battle and the remedy for the depravity of humankind was to divide the world into nations. It doesn't matter how many there were. And to raise up a new seed, a new people, who were tasked with representing the Most High God in order to draw the nations back to allegiance to Yahweh. Did you notice when we were just reading that last passage, it said, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations, okay, as opposed to the scattering that we saw at Babel. All right, so that's not doing away with nations, but bringing them back to faithfulness to the God who has been faithful to them this whole time. And this is why David says that the world, and again, that's the people groups of the nations, is firmly established and immovable. They're not going anywhere. God's people have to go out there and show them the goodness of God. This isn't about the shape of the planet or the stuff that it's made of. The foundation of the world is the order and the structure that God established by creating the nations and putting them in their places. That's people, not rocks or mountains or pillars. I'm not sure how anyone can read this song and just ignore all this talk about gods and peoples and nations and come away with half a Bible verse completely ripped out of its context and used literally in support of flat earth cosmology. I mean, if we really are interested in consistent interpretation, which seems to be the whole premise of the question in the first place, then let's start applying it. So either you show me how the sea and the fields and the trees can actually talk, which is what the literalist interpretation demands, or you acknowledge that the use of metaphor doesn't detract from the meaning of the text and doesn't require not taking it seriously. And if you can show me a talking tree, then I'll happily jump on the bandwagon with the flat earth crowd, ignore the entire context of this song and focus on the foundations of the earth as some kind of material structure that holds the world up. 
But until then, I'm going to interpret this passage in a manner consistent with biblical doctrine, consistent with the worldview that produced the text, and consistent with the reality of the world we observe around us. I think I've said enough on that now. As a matter of fact, I think I've said enough for the next month. I'm going to take a break. You've earned a break too, Chris. And uh, while I'm preparing my notes for season four, this is a great opportunity for all our listeners to maybe catch up on some previous episodes or grab a copy of the book, Answers the Giant Questions, to read in the meantime. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into the podcast for the last three seasons. Make sure you stick around because it's just going to keep getting better. And as Tim said, we're taking a break for the next month. And when we return, we will have an all new season of answers to your giant questions. So if you do have questions that you'd like to be featured on the show, reach out and touch us on the socials or send us an email through the website, giantanswers.com. And don't forget, while we're on break, there are still some awesome podcasts coming out from our friends at the Raven Creek Social Club. So check that out at ravencreeksc.com as well. Well, that's all from us. We'll catch you next time with a brand new season of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Graves Forsaken, GravesForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com, GiantAnswers.com, Please follow and have some socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast and get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. You'll never get to my age. Well, you will. Well, you're always older than me, so. Well, no, but one day you will reach the age that I'm currently at. Yes, you'll be older and you will have fresh complaints. Um, And I bought a push bike. Cool. So now I am equipped for fitness. And speed. Yes. Excellent. Fitness. I mean, fitting this whole pizza in my mouth. Middle-aged spread, as they say. Mmm. Yes. Um, Oh, good on you. Is there like a nice uh, kind of riding trail around your place or...? Uh, there are plenty of places to ride for uh, competitive and non-competitive pursuits. Excellent. And even non-pursuits. I don't like to be chased. No. So, well, yeah. Unless it's by God or your wife. Mm. 
maybe even then I might have reservations anyway. Uh, hmm, went to the uh, optometrist today uh, for new glasses. First time oh, yeah. in two years. Yes. Um, yeah, because yeah, these are broken and I still wear them anyway. Um, so, yeah, found out I need a new prescription to uh, give me the, the power to read fine print at close range. Yeah, looking forward to my new superpowers. Bifocals and bicycle. Yes. Excellent. Look at you, all the buys. Just yeah. don't become a bisexual. No, uh, I, I thought bifocal just meant you could see both wheels. Bicycle. Well, hopefully you can. You could have like a little mirror, on the, like a rear vision mirror in your bicycle. Built into my glasses, maybe, so I could see behind me. For mm, your enemies. Yes. Of which there are a multitude. Yes, I see them coming now. Hmm. So if you have questions that you would like featured on the show, reach out and touch us. Reach out and touch somebody on uh, the social media. You can speak to me sooner if you wish. No, let's just keep this relationship strictly professional. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty professional. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's pretty hard to argue with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear.